I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Lauren, what's going on? Hey, Phil, is it okay if I ask you a few more questions? Why, sure. I met Phil Stanford while I was producing a podcast about serial killer Keith Hunter Jesperson. Phil's a crime reporter and the newspaper columnist who branded Jesperson the happy face killer. He and I hit it off and we became friends to the point where we talk a couple of times a week. I joke the only person I call more is my mom. And that's how I got hooked on this story the 1989 murder of Michael Frankie, who was the director of Oregon's Department of Corrections. His killing is deeply intertwined with deception, greed, and corruption that radiates to the highest levels of politics and power. It's never been solved, and it's haunted Stanford for 30 years. It was not an accident. It was not a car burglary gone bad. It was, it was an assassination. He was a public official who discovered corruption in his own department. Heads were going to roll. The night before he was to address the legislative committee on this very subject, he was stabbed in the heart in front of the building where he worked. It was a cover-up from the beginning. They couldn't afford to even look at the people who might have done it, so they, they selected a patsy and they made up the evidence against him, put him on trial, and got a conviction. (laughs) Those sons of bitches. Do you think they knew he was innocent? Of course they knew it. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. As a columnist for the Oregonian and the Portland Tribune, Phil wrote more than 100 columns about Michael Frankie's murder, arguing the innocence of the man imprisoned for killing him. Many called Phil obsessed. 
The word obsession is kind of funny anyway. I mean, it, it implies a compulsion that you don't have much control over. And, and God knows there's probably some of that. But another way of looking at it is uh, stubbornness. And, and I, I will plead guilty to that too. Phil's a fiercely loyal guy with a choppy head of silver hair that matches the stubble of his beard and soft brown eyes that seem to have seen a bit too much of the corruption he writes about. Phil once told me he prefers the company of criminals to politicians and some cops because he finds them more honest. Michael Frankie's work entangled him with all three. New Mexico maximum security prison was in Santa Fe and Mike was with the AG's office uh, in New Mexico for the first district. That's Kevin Frankie, Michael's little brother. Although at just under six foot four, they stood a hair apart. Like Phil, Kevin projects the weariness and frustration of 30 years spent trying to bring Mike's killers to justice. It just makes me fucking sick. He keeps his hair pulled back in a slim ponytail, and his bushy eyebrows fight the frames of his wire-rimmed glasses. He looks a lot like pictures of Mike, as does the eldest Frankie brother, Pat, who sports snow-white hair and an almost genteel cowboy swagger. He's kind of like a cross between Thurston Howell and John Wayne, and he's always holding a fat cigar, whether it's lit or not. I was the oldest by three and a half years to Mike, and I'm 10 years older than Kevin. And uh, I got married shortly after high school, so I didn't have a lot of interaction with Kevin, but Mike and I were very close because we lived in the, our original house over in Kansas City, Missouri, and then later when we moved to Prairie Village, Kansas. Michael was a high school football star and wound up with a half scholarship to Kansas University. But the coach who recruited him was hired by Highlands University and offered Mike a full scholarship to move down there and play for him. So that's how he wound up in New Mexico. And he loved New Mexico. He loved skiing, he loved the outdoors, but he graduated and scored very high on his LSATs and the University of Virginia Law School gave him a full scholarship with a living stipend. He was drafted when he was in law school. So he applied to all the services. The Navy came up first. He accepted a Navy commission when he got out of law school. According to Pat, Mike was offered a job at a high-profile firm in New York City, but decided to return to New Mexico. He went to work for the Attorney General because he liked that part of the world. As part of his job, he ran their drug interdiction program, which interacted with all the states that border Arizona, New Mexico, California, Texas, and then the Mexican counterparts on the states that border the United States. At the time Mike Frankie moved to New Mexico, the prison systems were among the worst in the country. Education and recreation programs in the prisons had been canceled five years before. Prisons were overcrowded and overrun with cockroaches and mice. Food was inadequate, and prison officials began to coerce inmates to provide information, creating a snitch game that turned prisoners against one another. Eventually, the system deteriorated into chaos, and what followed was one of the most violent prison riots in U.S. history. We were on a canoe trip down the Rio Grande years later, 1984, sitting in a big hot springs, and we're 100 miles from anywhere. 
they started talking about it. These inmates were murdering, some were burned to death with acetylene torches, for example. And it gets worse from there. The riot was horrifying. Torture, brutal killings, men pushed to the brink by unlivable conditions in a system designed to turn them against one another. And the smell, the smell of death. The inmates were breaking out of the prison to get away from the killing that was going on. The, uh, they got into the snitch files of the warden's office and started singling out the guys that were ratting them out and killing them methodically and in the most unspeakable way. Kevin's take is even more gruesome. The drains were all plugged up, and it was there was six inches of blood and guts in the dormitory where the protective custody wing was. When it was finally contained, the riot left 33 inmates dead and over 200 injured. Twelve officers had been taken hostage during the riot. None were killed, but seven of them were severely beaten, and some were raped. Mike was the first civilian inside the prison after the National Guard took the prison over. What Michael Frankie walked into and through would have been beyond brutal. Floors flooded with sewage, blood, and body parts. He had a pair of Lucchese boots at his house that bore the scars of that first walk into the prison and up to six or seven inches above the ankle, it was just stained with blood. And that was his permanent reminder of the atrocities that can happen if you don't have the programs, if you don't have the facility under control. Michael kept those boots to remember the lesson they taught. He had a a family room that he added on to the house in, in Santa Fe. There was a china cabinet that my mom actually refinished. She was the antique nut. And that's where he kept his handgun. It was a Smith & Wesson 44 Magnum on the top of that because it was like six feet tall and none of the kids could reach up there to get it. So his gun went up there. Next to that was the table with a telephone, uh, his pager charger. And there was some shelves there with a bookshelf built in, and there was a pair of boots that were setting up there, and they looked disgusting, and that's, but they were a constant reminder of, that was, oh, I can't imagine. Instead of running from the violence those boots represented, Michael used the riot as motivation to fix the problems that caused it moving on to the Attorney General's office, where he worked tirelessly to improve New Mexico's correctional system, helping to get more prisons built to ease overcrowding and funding to reemphasize prisoner education programs. He felt that education was the path out of prison to break the cycle of recidivism. So he was on the founding board of directors for the Santa Fe Community College and was very, very proud of that. And and actually the dedication of the college, the ribbon cutting, was after he had moved up here to Oregon and he, they brought him back down there with his family and uh, it was great. 
Frankie was driven to improve corrections, regardless of the obstacles. He loved the business. He understood it. He knew how to fix it. Around the same time Michael was building new prisons in New Mexico, corrections in the state of Oregon was experiencing its own difficulties. Michael Frankie got hired in 87. In 86, the year before he got there, there had been a brief kerfuffle referred to now as the 86 investigation when a local state senator, L.B. Day, had received word from guards, from inmates that alarmed him about the level of corruption in the corrections department, had pushed the governor to have an investigation. Well, the state police didn't have much choice. The governor was asking for it, so they made a pass at it, and in the end, demoted or fired or or prosecuted six very low-ranking guards. One for, say, stealing a cow. Another for taking tools. Another for using marijuana. There was brief notice of it in the papers, but that was about it. It was a cover-up. I mean, that was the purpose of the investigation, just to sweep it under the rug. And instead of one cow, there was the wholesale theft of truckloads of cattle. There was inmate labor being given to a local contractor for free. Drugs going in and out of the prison. Drug dealers in the prison protected. Prison officials using drugs and partying with inmates who they would have out for the week or the weekend. Wait, they were letting them out on the weekend? Yeah, well, they're letting them out for the week. The prisons were overcrowded, so their their brilliant solution was to let some of the prisoners out for a week and let other people use their bunks, and then they'd let those prisoners out for a week and they'd bring the other prisoners back in. Of course, they came in loaded with drugs, and while they were out there, they were doing what they did best anyway, which was burglarizing houses. And so around the prison, there were a number of safe houses where these stolen goods and drugs were exchanged, protected by prison guards and officials. So the 86 investigation glossed over all of that. Yeah, and what's so clear is that after the state police turned in their investigation, L.B. Day, the senator who had requested the information in the first place, wrote a letter to the governor saying he was dismayed that the investigation hadn't gotten to the bottom of the rampant corruption in the corrections department. And what happened to L.B. Day? About two weeks after that, he died of a heart attack. He was an old man, and that was the end of the investigation. You fast forward a year, there's a new governor, Neil Goldschmidt, and he hires a new director of corrections. That's what Michael Frankie walks into. Yeah. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. 
Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Well, Neil Goldsmith had run against Norma Paulus, and if there hadn't been a third-party candidate, probably Norma would have won. But uh, Neil was this charismatic mayor of Portland and very, very gifted guy. That's Chuck Sides a then-state representative whose legislative district included the Oregon State Penitentiary. He and Mike Frankie played basketball together. Today, he's an affable businessman with a booming laugh and tons of stories about Oregon's history and politics. Back to Goldschmidt. Short story on him. Uh, from the mayorship, he was appointed to the Secretary of Interior under Carter. Carter, of course, lost in the next election. So he came home and was hired by Nike, and uh, Neil uh, was given the territory of Canada to run. But Neil and Nike didn't get along too well, so Goldschmidt decided to run for governor. When he won the election, uh, he did a pretty good survey and what was wrong with things and what was right with things. And he interviewed older people that had been in those areas, and one of them was the Department of Corrections. And one of the biggest problems? Like the mob... Corrections was a family business. Corrections was made up of literally family members. An ex-wife, a wife, a cousin, an uncle, a brother, a sister. And they basically interlocked and protected each other. And if you got into the system, you learned the lessons in life that, hey, you go along or you get out or something happens to you. Goldschmidt knew he had to do something about corrections, and fast. So he hunted nationwide 
and picked this guy out, Michael, who was that time had just cleaned up the New Mexico Corrections Department by taking the mob leaders and putting them in isolation. Frankie's success caught Goldschmidt's attention, who tapped Mike to help clean up Oregon's correction system, which, like New Mexico, was also overwhelmed by overcrowding and corruption. Here's Phil. Neil Goldschmidt knows there's a mess down there, but all he says publicly is that it's a management problem, and he hires Michael Frankie. Michael Frankie is not the usual sort of prison warden you, you see in the movies. He was a lawyer, he was a former judge, he was a former prosecutor, a really sophisticated guy. So he's brought in, he starts hearing from the same people who talked to L.B. Day. The same guards, the same inmates, he's getting the same information. And he starts his own investigation. Mike's older brother, Pat, believes while Frankie knew the correction system needed fixing, he wasn't given the full picture. He didn't know about the problems with corruption when he came up here. He had looked at Alaska, Texas, Colorado, Maryland, and Oregon. For various reasons, the others didn't work out. There was just a whole litany of reasons why. Neil Goldschmidt had promised Mike the same level of support that he had gotten from Tony and I when Tony was governor. Frankie hired an assistant director, Elise Clausen, who recalls their first meeting with the governor. Neil said, and if things blow up with the counties, he said, because I'm going to run for re-election, he said, I may hold you responsible. <laughs> Michael's just there listening, kind of like, oh, well. <laughs> Despite the difficulties he'd soon encounter, Mike's arrival was well-received by many, including then-state Senator Jim Hill. He came across as um, someone who was enthusiastic and Corrections is the kind of field that can just beat the enthusiasm out of you, uh, if you allow it. Originally from Atlanta, Hill, like Frankie, was a transplant. Very impressive guy. Very capable lawyer, first of all. And he wasn't part of the, the good old boy system, so he saw through it. He was quite noticeable besides that because he was a tall, dignified black man, which is uh, worth saying in Oregon because there are so very few black people, especially in the state legislature. After L.B. Day died, he was elected to that seat in Salem. He tried to take over the investigation. He was the head of the legislative committee that Frankie was supposed to talk to the day after he was killed. Jim Hill welcomed Mike Frankie's hire. He was someone who wanted to do some things that were innovative, and he was a person who still cared. We had a real sense of hope in that we had found the right person, someone who was going to be uh, progressive in terms of, of, of corrections. And so it was really very exciting. Former Representative Chuck Sides also saw the same promise. Michael came walking in, and he was the first guy that ever said to me, I don't want more money. I can't change people. I can detain them. If they want to change, they change themselves. If you want to help me out, you give more money to early childhood education. Reading, writing, math is more important in keeping people out of corrections than everything you will ever know. Here's Michael Frankie, in his own words, 
addressing the City Club of Portland the year before he died. I'm the punishment point in the criminal justice system. You can put all the effort and money you want to into the catch basin and the punishment exercise, but you're not touching that socially complex bundle of issues having to do with dysfunctional families, child abuse, substance abuse, parenting skills, unwed motherhood in teenagers, and all that mess that generates the people that come into prison. That optimism was ill-fated. It wasn't long before Mike Frankie began to run into pushback from the old school system. He wanted to expand the prisons to help control the overcrowding, but without adequate support, his job became increasingly difficult, and it began to interfere with his life outside of work. Here's Pat Frankie. There were some things that happened. I came up here in August before he died. He wasn't having a great time. Goldschmidt didn't give him the support. In fact, I think their relationship got contentious fairly early on, so he was fighting an uphill battle. We were planning an, another long-distance, long eight-day canoe trip, uh, and I talked to him in December before this trip, just before he died, and he was up to his eyes trying to get his budget put together. And he says, I don't know if I, I've got to get this budget thing done, and if I get everything squared away, I'll, I'll go on a trip. Otherwise, I can't make it. It wasn't having fun. Far from it. Frankie increasingly felt his life was in danger and carried a gun everywhere. One memory from a visit at the time still haunts Pat. And I was sleeping in the family room, and I opened up a sliding glass door that opened up on his backyard. And in a matter of a couple of minutes, he was there closing the door and putting a bar back in. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, you can never be too security conscious. I don't know. It just didn't occur to me. It was 2 o'clock in the morning or something, and I didn't give it any more thought. I wish I had. Asked him what he was worried about. That memory would pale in comparison to what Pat and Kevin encountered at Mike's house after his murder. We went out to his house, his wife and I, and her, his, her dad, and our brother Kevin with the police, to pick up clothing for the funeral people. There was a 45 caliber pistol in the bed that had been under his pillow and a 12-gauge state riot gun leaning against the door that opened out, sliding glass door that opened out onto a deck in Scott's Mills. The deck and the sidewalk down below were littered with hundreds and hundreds of spent 12-gauge shotgun shells. He'd been out there doing the walk, practicing with that 12-gauge. I don't know why, that isn't a normal activity, I don't think. I don't think that's how I would want to spend my life, sleeping with a pistol under my pillow. And Michael also wanted his wife, Binkta, to be able to protect herself. Here's Chuck Sides again. He told me he was teaching her to shoot, but I didn't realize it was a shotgun and all that other stuff. But there was probably 25 shells laying around her, more or less. Uh, and I went, oh. That was that understanding that, that things were getting tense here, and he wanted her to know. And that's what he told me when he said I had, was teaching her how to shoot a handgun. 
And that's when I first got my eyes open as, uh, you know, his life had been threatened and he wanted her to know how to handle herself and handle a gun. Phil Stanford thinks Michael Frankie's investigation into corruption within his department fueled that concern. Some years later, it became clear that there's actually photographic evidence that he was indeed going to discuss corruption that morning before the legislative committee because we have a picture of his whiteboard he was using that evening with his staff to talk about what his speech was about. And at the bottom was one item called the A-Shed. There was a warehouse on prison property that had burned down. Well, it, as, as we know now, although <laughs> there's been no, certainly no desire by uh, any state officials to admit it, it was arson for insurance purposes. And he knew it. He'd gotten onto it, and he was going to discuss it. There at the bottom on that whiteboard was the A-shed. It was the last thing he was going to talk about him, which means it was the, what he wanted to leave the legislators with. He was going after his top staff. Heads were going to roll. Yeah, they were. And instead, he gets murdered. Yes. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. 6.45 p.m. on January 17th, 1989, the night before he was to present the findings of his investigation. Michael Frankie walked out of the Dome Building, headquarters of the Oregon Department of Corrections. Forty minutes later, Elise Clausen found his car with the driver's side door open. I went out the front steps, and the door to his car was open, and I hollered at him because I couldn't see him, and I had this really creepy feeling. And then I walked over to his car, and he wasn't there, and the, and the driver's side door was wide open. And that's when I went in and searched everywhere, like I said, and called. And when security got there um, and they started to drive around, at that point I left. I kind of kept waiting and I thought, I guess I'll go. So I left and drove home and um, remember telling my husband about what had happened. And I could not go to sleep. And I said to him before he went to sleep, I said, I just have this horrible feeling something's happened to Michael. After a four-hour search, his body was found outside the office building's north entrance. He had been stabbed in the heart and was lying in a pool of his own blood and the glass he shattered trying to get back inside. Roby Eldridge, who is our information officer, called and he said, Michael's been killed. And I said, oh my God, I knew it. Chuck Sides, like many others, found out Mike was murdered on the local news. I learned about it from the TV. And it was on early. And then I drove immediately. Our house is only about 15 minutes away. And there's this large crowd of people. And, you know, you got the reporters, you got the investigators, you got everything. He arrived on the scene in a state of disbelief and shock. I got there before they quickly threw up the yellow tape and that type of thing, which I thought was interesting later. But Michael had gone from his car, crawled up the steps, went over to the double uh, doors and... uh, couldn't get it open and then punched it, reached in, but he couldn't get the thing open, and that's where he laid down and died up there. The big mystery that morning was, why did it take them so long to find Mike's body when it was right there, 20, 30 feet from his car? It's right there on the portico, otherwise the porch of the building, and why no one saw it before that point is still a mystery to everybody. That's Eric Mason, a local television reporter sent out to cover the murder. I think the call was, there's a dead body over there at the dome building. Get over there right away. There's hardly any details about it, and we're going to be going live at the noon hour with you. Everybody was grim-faced. It was a dark, gray morning. I remember the four-door sedan that he was driving was out there. It was still parked where he'd parked it. I was surprised at how close we're able to walk right up to the yellow tape 
where the car was and the only place that you, they really didn't want you walking through was the pathway from the car right up the steps right to Mike's office. The district attorney himself, the head DA, was out walking around, and that's rare. You knew something big had just happened, and so it was clear someone big had been murdered. Kevin and Pat were both notified by phone. Kevin was in Florida. What's going through my mind, I think, is probably what goes through everybody's mind when you get a, a tragic event, is that I knew in my heart that I would get out here and somebody would tell me it's a big mistake, it was somebody else, Mike's okay, he's over here, the person up on the patio was somebody else. The gist of my thinking and feeling was just overwhelming grief and sadness, but that brilliant hope of light uh, saying that there's got to be some botch up here, that it was somebody else and it was not Mike. Pat received the call in Missouri, where he was in the middle of work. My pager went off like three times in a row. I dialed my answering service, and they said, you have an emergency call from Oregon, and they gave me a phone number, and I called, and it was Dick Peterson, who was Mike's assistant. And he told me, and I went absolutely berserk, to the point that I scared the hell out of the three people in the office because I was absolutely screaming at the phone. I was motherfucking everybody. They didn't know what I was talking about, what was going on. The governor got on the phone and expressed his condolences, and I didn't know Neil Goldsmith from Mechanicorn. At that point, I didn't care. I was just absolutely flabbergasted, shocked, pissed off to beat hell. Kevin immediately took a plane to Oregon. I slammed a lot of... JB scotch on the racks on the airplane, trying to numb it, and nothing to go down. I mean, scotch would, but my emotions wouldn't. And I felt the the airplane sliding down, and I could see the clouds out there. The landing lights came on, and it was just this thick, dark cloud, and then settled down, gliding in on the Columbia River, seeing the city of Portland ahead of us. I thought, shit, this isn't a dream, this is it. It was tough. Pat had to break the brutal news to their parents. Nobody answered at the house. Turns out my dad was running errands, shopping, doing something. And my mother volunteered at the University of Kansas Medical Center. So I went over there and went in and she said, what are you doing here? I said, I just came over to see you, good looking. And uh, she came up, she introduced me to all the ladies and she said, what's what's going on? She, oh, Helen Frank is a smart gal. I said, Mike's been in an accident. And she got, she got a hold of me, got in my face. And she says, is he dead? I said, let's get the hell out of here. And that's all I'm saying about that. And somebody's gone. Somebody needs to pay for that. My father was absolutely crushed. My mother was, they were torn to pieces. 
It ruined a lot of lives. Kevin arrived in Oregon first and waited for Pat at the airport. Al Chandler with the Department of Corrections picked me up at the gate with the old airport sign, Kevin Frankie, and introduced himself. And uh, he asked me if I had any luggage or anything, and I said, no, I've got my bag. And he said, do you want to go have a smoke down there? He filled me in on as much information as he had, uh, and basically all he had was what was forthcoming from the press conference they had the the morning at 9 o'clock. And we had to sit there and wait for for two hours uh, for Pat's plane that was delayed in Salt Lake City to get in. And I remember seeing Pat. Uh, He looked like he just had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And all we could do was just hug each other. All I said was, it's true. That was it. Local authorities were quick to label Michael's murder a car burglary gone bad, but it was clear to many there was much more to it, including former Senator Jim Hill. Yes, people get robbed all the time. Uh, They don't get murdered. Right from the beginning, it, it struck me as being very odd. The whole car robbery thing never made any sense to me. Elise Clausen got the same story from the police. There was nothing about it that um, seemed to me that car burglary made any sense. There was conversation among people that felt like this was meant for him. I always thought it was. Chuck Sides thought it odd for a criminal to target a state worker's car. They don't have a lot of discretionary income. They don't have normal things that some of the private sector has. That doesn't make sense to me. Reporter Eric Mason thought things just didn't add up given Mike's nearly six-foot-four-inch athletic build. If someone was just jockey boxing cars and going through cars and looking for stuff in the car, Mike could have taken anybody on and, and won easily in a fistfight. Mike wasn't naive. He had a car alarm, was usually armed, and was anticipating a threat. Here's Phil Stanford. He knew it was a very dangerous business, and he didn't let people get close to him in the yard. It's hard to imagine how he let someone get close enough to stab him. That's one of the first things that Kevin and Pat spoke publicly about. They were told, be careful what you say to the press, don't talk to the press. But they they did talk about how this didn't make sense to them. How, if it was a robbery, how come he still had his watch? Still had his money, his wallet was still on him. Yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense. No, it doesn't. And it's one of the first things that caught my attention too. There were crimes that you could commit back then because the prisons were so overcrowded that the worst case scenario would be you would be out the next day. But jockey boxing a car would be a sight and release 99.9% of the time because you're going to get what's basically a parking ticket. The worst thing you could do is try and kill somebody over it. So a random car break accelerating into murder seemed to stretch. Why would a small-time criminal trying to pilfer a glove compartment kill someone and risk life in prison when they could just as easily run away? Neil Goldschmidt finally addressed the press and the public about the incident. Here's Eric Mason again. We ended up over at the the Capitol for a really grim-faced Neil Goldschmidt. And at the time, he looked shell-shocked. 
And I thought to myself, wow, this is a new hire. He's just hired Mike Frankie. He must have become fairly close to Mike if he looks shell-shocked and there's almost like tears in his eyes. Here's Neil Goldschmidt at that press conference. It is very hard to walk the halls in the legislature today because uh, there's a force that's missing. The violence seems to go on almost endlessly. In this difficult time, it is perhaps well to ask which direction we are headed as a state and as a people. Only later would we understand that I think what was going on there was the governor thinking, my own secrets might come rolling out of the closet. Phil Stanford believes Mike Frankie was about to expose far too many secrets within Oregon's Department of Corrections. There were a number of high-ranking corrections officials who had very good reasons to be happy that Michael Frankie wasn't around. I'm careful to say that that doesn't mean they were involved in the murder, but if you're looking to investigate the murder of a public official, you'd at least look at them, and they were virtually ignored by the state police investigators. The important thing to remember, Lauren, is that the same people who conducted the Frankie murder investigation also conducted the 86 investigation. The same DA, Dale Penn, the same state police officers. Yeah. Wow. So, of course, they couldn't admit there was the possibility of corruption behind the murder of Michael Frankie because they'd gone out of their way to cover up the corruption that was there when he got there. Mike's brother, Kevin, agrees. From day one, I didn't believe that somebody was stealing something out of Mike's glove compartment and killed him. The whole scenario, everything just seemed absolutely wrong because of what I knew about my brother, about his I'm not going to be a hostage mentality. Kevin and Phil were about to dive into an unimaginable world of corruption and depravity that would nearly ruin Phil's career. It seemed unfair to have the paper, I mean, especially while I was there, attack me, you know? Put Kevin's life at risk. Told me to turn around. I wasn't going to turn around. They told me to get on my knees. And I, no, you got to do it. Put it right between my fucking eyes. And expose the seediest underbelly of Oregon. I was 13. What did your mom do to you? She, she sold me for drugs. As having deep ties to the very people who were supposed to police it. Dirty cops, dirty town. Salem's the most corrupt place, any place you can find in the United States. Michael Frankie's killers were never brought to justice, and you'll find out why. This season of Murder in Oregon. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin, with music supervision by Noel Brown. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.